Hello, I'm Professor Alex Bovey, Dean and Deputy Director of the Courtauld Institute of Art. I'm really excited to be bringing you the first episode of our new podcast series, Courtauld Cast. The Courtauld is the UK's smallest specialist university dedicated to teaching and research in art history, conservation and curating. It's also an art gallery with a remarkable collection of paintings, sculptures, and some of the world's most important works of art. The spark which inspired this series has been a major renovation of the Courtauld Gallery. For the past three years, we've been completely transforming the space to bring out the best in our collections and make it truly accessible. And I hope that after listening to this podcast, you'll pay us a visit in person and enjoy the art up close. In this episode, I'll be digging into the stories behind some of our most popular and important works. Vincent van Gogh's Man with a Bandaged Ear. This work has often been seen as a slightly sad and depressing work. I actually find it incredibly positive. And Paul Cezanne's Card Players. It is a really lively, flickering paint surface that he creates. I'll also be exploring how the gallery was transformed through our renovation programme and what it's like to be tasked with rehanging fridge magnet status works of art. And I'll be making some unexpected discoveries along the way. We found an old medieval stone cesspit. There were a number of cesspits. There were some earlier Saxon ones and then this chalk stone cesspit, which they think was built in the 14th or 15th century. That was Chris Watson, the director of, and the second W in, Witherford Watson Mann Architects, WWM, the firm behind our renovations. But first, I'm talking to my colleague Karen Serre, curator of paintings at the Courtauld Gallery, and Barnaby Wright, deputy head of the Courtauld Gallery, and the Daniel Katz curator of 20th Century Art. Where better to start than with the man who gave the Courtauld its name and one of our foundational art collections? Samuel Courtauld was a textile manufacturer and industrialist in the first part of the 20th century. He took over the chairmanship of Courtauld Limited, which was one of the UK's most significant and largest textile firms at the beginning of the 1920s and oversaw its rapid expansion. But it was at that exact same time that he started to buy modern French pictures. Impressionism and post-Impressionism, the likes of Monet and Manet and Van Gogh and Gauguin. And he was really a pioneering collector at that time because no other private individual was collecting in the UK this type of material of the quality and importance of Courtauld. And surprisingly, you couldn't go to a public collection in the United Kingdom and see examples of Impressionism on the walls. There was none to speak of at the National Gallery or Tate or elsewhere. So Courtauld really changed public taste for Impressionism in Britain. 
one of the great founding collections of the Courtauld was Samuel Courtauld's Impressionist collection, and, and it remains famous for that. But over the years, the collection has grown extensively, but not in the way that you might expect. So not through an acquisitions fund where curators go out and assemble a collection, but actually almost entirely through gifts and bequests from major collectors who have presented either the entirety of their collection or single great works of art to the collection itself. And for that reason, it's sometimes known as a collection of collections. And there have been major landmark gifts and bequests during the course of the 20th century. So what began as Courtauld's Impressionist collection has now grown to be able to tell a story of art that begins in the medieval period and stretches right through to the 20th century and beyond. Since we've reopened walking through the gallery when there's lots of visitors, you hear people say, I didn't know that was here all the time, as they spot one or other of the really kind of stops you in your tracks masterpieces that we have. Paul Cezanne, often called the father of modern art, is the artist responsible for many of our best-known Impressionist masterpieces. You'll probably be familiar with some of his paintings of bathers, apples and card players already. Paul Cezanne was Samuel Courtauld's favourite artist, plain and simple, and that's very clear in the collection as a whole. He assembled more works by Cezanne than he did by any other artist. And that means that the Courtauld now has the largest collection of Cezanne's work in the United Kingdom. It's given the Courtauld some of the most famous paintings that Cezanne ever produced, from an epic version of Montaigne Saint-Victoire through to his famous card player subjects, Man Smoking a Pipe, and one of the most beguiling still lives, the still life with Plaster Cupid. So Courtauld was able to put together a really extraordinary variety of works by Cezanne that I think gives one a real insight into what it was that made him such a remarkable artist. Imagine a bustling Paris in the mid-1870s, brimming with life. A golden generation of artists like Renoir and Monet hanging out together in the city's cafes, breaking extraordinary ground in painting in the Impressionist style. But in fact, Cezanne preferred to keep himself to himself and was known as a bit of a recluse. Age 31, he retreated from the hive of activity that was Paris to his quiet family estate in Aix-en-Provence, where he worked day after day in near isolation for the rest of his career. It's only at the very end of his life, the end of the 1890s and into the first years of the 20th century, that his reputation starts to grow and people start to take more notice of his work. Dealers become more interested and he starts to be exhibited. And actually, it's only after his death in 1906 that his reputation really takes off. Barney, one of our most commented upon paintings by Cezanne as the card players, or in fact the series of card players, right? Tell me about this painting. Will you describe it for me? 
Yeah, I think for many people, the card players is one of the most recognisable Cezannes in the collection, and it's a lot of people's favourites as well. It shows what's essentially quite an unremarkable subject. Two men sitting either side of a rather rustic-looking table. Perhaps they're in a, a bar of some kind, and they're playing cards together. I think what is extraordinary about it, though, is the sense of stillness and peace and contemplation that it projects. And that's quite unusual for a picture of this sort for the subject, because over the centuries, previous depictions of bar scenes and card playing are often depicted as rowdy, as vice-ridden dens of iniquity, people gambling and swindling each other. Suzanne somehow strips all of that away and you get a picture that could almost be in a church or a cathedral. It's so peaceful and contemplative. He gives them a bottle of wine on the table, but he doesn't give them any glasses to drink it from. So this is a picture that he's very sort of sober in many ways. And if that's the subject matter, then the handling of it is anything but sober. It is a really lively, flickering paint surface that he creates with lots of variety of brush strokes. And it's a weird picture as well in terms of its proportions because by sort of strict anatomical standards, the figures are out of proportion. The man on the left's legs are too long and he has a very long back. It doesn't sort of stack up in a way, yet it makes perfect sense in the picture itself. They project friendship, I think, in a funny kind of way. Two working men sitting quietly... And they're friends, which, yeah. There, how many paintings do we have that show male friendship? I think that's absolutely right. You really feel that those men have known each other all their lives, probably. We know that actually they were workers on the Cezanne family estate and one of their names, Paulin Paulet, has come down to us. The other man remains anonymous but they were farmhands, one of them was a gardener. So they were known well to Cezanne as well. He'd have probably known them most of his life and I think that sense of friendship and closeness is and sort of being comfortable in each other's company is definitely something the picture embodies. Can I ask something a little bit nerdy? Do you think that he drew them from across the room and then went away and painted them? Or do you think he set up his easel and said, do you mind if I <laughs> paint you while you play this game? Yeah, it's interesting. One of the ways that we know more about this picture is to look at the surviving drawings that relate to it. And there are an unusually large number of drawings, you might call them studies, that relate to his card player pictures, unusual in his terms. But what they all show is single figures. And it seems that what Cezanne did was to draw each of those men on their own in his studio, most likely, or in one of the rooms of the farm, and then put them together as a pair on the canvas itself from those drawings, rather than setting up easel in where they might have been playing cards or the room where they might have been having their game. And that would have suited Suzanne's temperament much more. We know he was irascible, that he didn't like being overlooked when he worked, that he was terribly self-conscious. So I think the idea that he would have 
set them up with cards in their hands or painted them in a bar would have been anathema to Cezanne. It's invidious to pick out any one picture from the Courtauld's collection as the most celebrated or the most famous, but if you were going to do that, I think one of the contenders would certainly be Van Gogh's self-portrait with a bandaged ear. And how is it that that came to be in the Courtauld's collection? Again, it's thanks to Samuel Courtauld, who purchased it in Paris in 1928. Karen Serre is the curator of paintings here at the Courtauld. And interestingly, even though he gave the majority of his collection to found the Courtauld Institute of Art uh, four years later, that work he kept uh, with him in his house until his death in 1947. So it only came to the Courtauld after that. But it's been here ever since, and I think people sometimes don't realize that it's not in Paris or Amsterdam, but that it's here. And indeed, we recently organized an exhibition on Vagoff self-portraits to really put it in, in context. It's the only self-portrait by Van Gogh in the UK, and it's such a crucial painting for him at a time of, of great turmoil in his life, but also it's a painting of extraordinary ambition. One of the things that I think bringing the self-portraits together, as you've done, really demonstrates is this extraordinary, almost terrifying creative sprint that culminated in this picture, or, or really where this picture is a part of it. And looking at it alongside other portraits that he painted of himself during this time when it was like he fell apart and then was trying to piece himself back together through these kind of acts of self-examination... It really reveals, I think, some quite special things about the picture in our collection, which turns out to be more different than the others than I thought. I mean, is that how you felt about it, seeing the Courtauld picture alongside the others? Definitely. One of the things about our work is that you think, oh, you've seen Van Gogh once, you can recognize him immediately. His features are so recognizable, his piercing green eyes. Often he has a beard in our work, he's shaven. But also, it's interesting that it's the only self-portrait that has a recognizable background, a setting that we know was in his uh, house that he really treasured in Arles, in the south of France. And behind him, on one side, he has a blank canvas that is actually not completely blank. There's a hint of a composition. So he's obviously started working. And on the other side is a Japanese print that he owned that is, again, also recognizable. So he's positioned himself in a way between his work in progress and this inspiration that was so important to him, the Japanese uh, woodcut. And that's very unusual. Uh, He's never really done that before. So it's really interesting to understand why he would have presented himself in that way. Do you think he wanted to kind of record himself in this house at that moment? Because so many of the other self-portraits have him against a kind of swirling coloured background or a very non-specific in location. But this one is hyperactively specific and also specific about moment in his life because he's just mutilated his ear and his face is bandaged with this very, very distinctive strap-like bandage under his chin. Do you think that he styled himself specifically 
for this painting? Yeah, so we know exactly when this work was made, thanks to the many letters that he wrote to his brother Theo, who was back in Paris. And so he painted this work only a week after leaving hospital, indeed after cutting off a large part of his left ear, following a dispute with his housemate, the artist Paul Gauguin, who had come down south to work with him. So After leaving hospital, Van Gogh goes back to this house that he used to share with Gauguin, but that is now empty. It's January, it's cold, there's no heating, so he has to indeed wear a coat indoors, and this fur cap that we know he bought specifically to keep his bandage in place. And he could have very well chosen to show his other side, his other profile, but the fact that he does show the bandage so prominently is very revealing. He's obviously trying to come to terms with what happened, and while this work has often been seen as a as a slightly sad and, and depressing work, I actually find it incredibly positive and really inspiring in a way because this is the first work that he does when he's back in his house. And so it's an incredible manifesto that he's actually going back to work and that he's going to continue painting. I think he's quite a charismatic man, I think he comes across in, in his paintings, but that haggard kind of angular face and and his self-injury, which I agree with you that it does seem like a very positive act of creation and self-description, very unsparing. Great it's, incre- as well. it's an incredibly brave, brave thing to have painted. Um, and indeed, the colors and the use of color is absolutely incredible. And it's really in the last years of his life that he finds himself, that he finds this distinctive artistic voice. He took a long time, actually, uh, before deciding to become a painter. He was an art dealer. He was a preacher. He was a school teacher. And at the age of 27, he decided that he wanted to become an artist. Artist, but it's really only when he came to live in Paris with uh, his brother Theo, who was an art dealer there, that he discovered Impressionism, that he really was able to meet all of the avant garde artists uh, that were present and indeed that are now represented in the Great Room at the Courtauld Gallery. That he really developed his um, this style that we know so well bold colors, very thick brushstrokes. So, in many ways, it's in France. That that he became the artist that we know. For the whole of my life in and out of Somerset House as a student and now faculty member at the Courtauld, there's been a zone at the top of the Great Stair, which has been a curved panel completely blank. And it is blank no more because we are very fortunate to have been able to commission the British-American artist Cecily Brown to create a new work for that space. And Barney, you've been really central to the process of that commission and its installation. And I wonder if you can maybe describe the picture and say a bit about what it means to you to have that new work there. It's been one of the real highlights, I think, of the last few years, the commissioning of this huge painting by Cecily Brown for the space that you've described at the top of the spiral staircase that we've long looked at and thought that is a space that is crying out for a picture to be hung there because what it is is a 
large curved plaster frame, effectively, about six metres span by a couple of metres high, that originally did have and was designed to have a painting in it. So when the Royal Academy occupied the building for the first time in 1780, it had a large frieze-like painting of Minerva and the Muses by the Royal Academician Cipriani. That picture was lost, I think, sometime at the beginning of the 19th century, and there hasn't been a replacement picture in that spot for 200 years or so. So in asking Cecily Brown to produce a picture, we were doing something pretty bold and pretty historic in a, in a way. When you talk to her about it, it's also clear that she was quite overawed at the prospect. Earlier in the year, we were thrilled to welcome Cecily as a guest speaker at one of our open court old hours. And here's a couple of snippets from her interview. It's very intimidating, the idea of hanging with such amazing paintings. But she responded to it, I think, brilliantly. She said that one of the things she did was try to shed her inhibitions by imagining... ..that I was going to be in a group exhibition with them and just thinking of it as, oh, they're just my mates that we're going to go for drinks later and, you know, they're just my peers because if I'd been born at another time or they had, it's quite possible that I could have been at art school with them. What emerged from her New York studio after months of work on this picture is this sort of epic, how do you describe it, almost like a kind of dreamscape of painting, dominated in the centre by two naked men who seem to stride out of the picture, and then on either side by this dreamscape of flowing brushwork and colour which figures and forms emerge and recede. So it's sort of representational and non-representational, this sort of great churning sea of images and brushstrokes and colours. It's created an iconic vista in the gallery, I think. If you happen to go on Instagram, as I sadly do, and just see what people are posting, so often it's that view back onto Cecily's painting. And there's something, I think, very kind of powerful development for us, I suppose, in having a work of art by a living artist. And even, you know, the fact it probably shouldn't be such a special occasion to have a work of art by a female artist hanging on our walls. But such is the nature of our collection and the history of art that it kind of is, actually. Yeah, um, it really is. Yeah. And I mean, one of the disappointments of the Courtauld collection for all its greatness and riches is that it has very few female artists represented in the collection so you know that is actually an event but more than that I think as you say what's an event is having this extraordinary new creation in that space obviously the building was designed to showcase new art. It was the contemporary art of its day in the 18th and 19th centuries. So to have a picture like this sort of living and breathing in the space is, is special. And perhaps most sort of relevant, and the reason why we wanted to talk to Cecily originally, was because she is so steeped, so self-consciously steeped in the history of art and the history of European painting. And so this picture, I, I sort of think, is a work that you look at and then it gives you a real appetite for painting. It gives you an appetite to go back and look with perhaps renewed eyes at the earlier works on the walls of the Courtauld. Yeah, I think the kind of radical project that you, mentioned in the early Impressionists. I think it sort of revivifies that sense of jeopardy and experiment that 
I think sometimes when works become a part of the canonical story of art history, the risks taken by their artists get flattened out somehow. And I think having them in dialogue with an artist who's really trying to understand the experiments that they undertook, but in a fresh way, is really energizing and a very kind of wonderful thing. We reopened the Courtauld Gallery in November after a period of closure. Um, Tell me about what it's been like for you both taking part in what I think must be a once in a career opportunity to reinterpret a world-class collection of paintings. I think it certainly didn't escape our, our attention that this was a pretty extraordinary project to be involved with. And I think you're right, it is probably once in a career, once in a lifetime that you get to really rethink the display and interpretation of a whole collection. I think museums are very often composed of different layers across the decades of particular rooms or floors having been uh, re-displayed and and you have this sort of archaeology of different curatorial interventions. But to do the whole thing from top to bottom was really remarkable for us. What the refurbishment allowed us to do was to show the works in in beautiful spaces, but also improve the lighting hugely, which was really one of our key problems uh, before. And what that does is indeed, it really, I mean, so many times it's like you're discovering a new work that, you know, you're seeing details that you hadn't seen before. The gallery has such a variety. You go from seeing a masterpiece that really stops you in your track to then seeing a whole room full of works of art, not only painting, paintings but sculpture and decorative art and furniture and you don't really see that anywhere else it just feels like such a, a unique thing to us to the core tool to the type of collection that we have to the type of building that we're in it's always just yeah really uplifting to walk through the galleries the renovation of the Courtauld gallery in somerset house has been a mammoth undertaking It involved reinterpreting an iconic, grade one listed, 18th century building right in the centre of London. I sat down with one of the architects responsible for this job, Chris Watson, and I asked him about the challenges that he and his team faced during this process, including a rather large cesspit-shaped problem. We moved in, the Courtauld moved in to this building in the late 1980s. A noteworthy thing that happened shortly after we moved in was that the internet was invented. So, I mean, a lot has changed since we occupied the building and used it really as an art gallery and as a university. And when we came to you to reinterpret it for the 21st century... I suppose one of the things that we needed it to be was much more functional as a space that was welcoming for people. I mean, from the courtyard, this building looks so rational and orderly, but inside it was, and in in fact still remains in the bits that you haven't reached yet, really, really complicated. So could you say a bit about the the kind of the practical challenges to take these seven or eight townhouses and 
and draw them onto kind of a, a level. It's interesting when you, I mean, when you start looking at a, a public building, one of the first things you would normally do nowadays is just make a singular level easily accessible from yeah. the pavement. Um, wheelchairs can come in and out and they have a, use the same entrance as everybody else. But when we came, first of all, there were, I think, 42 different levels across the building. I mean, just extraordinary for a building of even of this size. And what we had to do was to, to start really sort of interrogate those levels and where we could realign them, um, often working with the grain of the building. One of the main issues that we had before our renovation was the lack of natural light, especially in our vast great room, which for a long time didn't seem very great at all. It was divided up into four separate galleries that were really hidden from the light. Chris and his team transformed the space by turning the four smaller rooms back into one great room, opening up the ceiling and letting natural light illuminate the space. There were elements all along the way where things had been altered a little bit or in, in the case of the great room it had been divided into four smaller galleries um, and you just didn't really have any sense of this huge volume or the, or the daylight that it, it can bring. Another goal for our refurbishment was to create a flowing, welcoming space. Chris and his team worked meticulously to achieve this by opening up staircases, leveling floors, and opening our vast vault space underneath the building, which now houses, amongst other things, our brand new gift shop. I think one of the things that's really striking is we've re-inhabited it, is that, I mean, it kind of feels like it's always been there in a way, to me, you know, I mean, it makes so much sense that you'd be able to descend one flight of stairs and walk all the way across to the other beautiful flight. But it was two two different organizations. There was the Royal Academy on one side and I think the Museum of Antiquaries. Uh, the Ant Society of Antiquaries, Society, I think, yeah, yeah. On the other. And there was no real reason not, or need for them to connect. But now you're a singular organization, you absolutely want to make yeah, those but imagine, they could have had like the ants and the RAs could have had battles down there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if only. One of the things I've found working with you and your colleagues is that in order to intervene in a building like this, you really have to be an architectural historian. You have to understand... You talked about the, the grain of the building a moment ago. You really have to understand the building before you start altering it or, or amplifying it. You know, what's that process like as an architect? It's an amazingly interesting process and it's quite a slow process really because you read and get various bits of uh, information about the building and you come in and you, you walk through it and you sort of interrogate it and you sort of try and work out the bits which don't seem to make sense. I mean, obviously, we kind of rediscovered the building as we stripped out some of the things that have accumulated since the Courtauld first moved in in the 90s. So this bit of London has been inhabited at least since Roman times. I mean, to be honest with you, probably <laughs> many, many uh, millennia um, before that. And I wonder if you can say a little about some of the material remains of that earlier uh, inhabitation that, uh, that was uncovered rather unexpectedly as part of the uh, project. 
Absolutely. When you're in the middle of a building project, this is not what you want to find. Um, <laughs> but when we were uh, lowering a floor by sort of a foot to bring all the levels through for the new public toilets, we found uh, an old medieval uh, stone cesspit. I suppose it was two and a half meters square and three or four meters deep. When we first found it, it was just we just found the stones at the top, but then we had to stop work in that part of the building and bring in an archaeology team, and they spent a number of months excavating and recording the finds in the area. And it turns out that there was there were a number of cesspits. There were some earlier Saxon ones, and then this chalk stone cesspit, which they think was built in the 14th or 15th century. And of course, you can imagine how thrilled we all were to hear that the gallery basically stands on the site of a great ancient public toilet. The cesspit was, they think, may have been attached to uh, the old Chester Inn. And then when the Tudor Palace was built by the Duke of Somerset in 1547, it became part of the basements to that. There are many layers underneath the building, as there is everywhere throughout London. So we're not the first nor the last to reinterpret this little patch of London, I suppose. Absolutely. There are some amazing finds down there. Loom weights, uh, spindle whorls, fragments of, of bone comb, uh, bits of fabric, and, and also some amazing ceramics, some of which are just in fragments, but some of them are in quite intact. One of the things I remember seeing as kind of a wonderful kind of relic of an earlier time was a knit comb or a comb. Did you have any kind of favorite objects that were found down there? You said there was a, a spur. Oh, yeah, a single spur. Uh, which yeah. I had not heard of before, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, what happened? You want to know the story? You feel like, you know, somebody should have put a note on it just so that, like, the other one was broken or, you know... You just imagine a lot of things falling out of people's back pockets, don't you, as they come to use the kind of house of ease. <laughs> sort of most significant things were um, some important ceramics, some of which were quite intact. And there, were there was that amazing double dish, wasn't there? That was like the sort of thing that you'd get yeah. in a restaurant today with like an olives in one side and then a little, <laughs> a little separate compartment for pips. But I don't know if it was, a, you know, I, I would use it for an olive dish. But that, that, how on earth did it completely intact? I mean, I think when you find anything, it's, it's all, you know, it's just, it's, it's gold dust because you're trying to understand the people's lives behind the object. I think the ceramic vessels are, are quite amazing. One of the interesting aspects of them is that they, they weren't made in London or in the UK, they were from mainland Europe. So they really give you a bit of a picture of this trade um, across the channel from mainland Europe at the time. And we hope that these will be where they're fragments, the vessels can be uh, remade or put together and put on display in, in the court hall at some point. That would be wonderful. I think the idea that you have a direct link from this site as it was 600, 700 years ago to the present, there's something also just kind of delightful, I guess, in the idea that the Courtauld's new loos have this, you know, centuries-long connection. People have, who've been visiting this spot of London have been going to the loo Absolutely. in this I mean, it, spot. It's for, where they had to be. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what people will find down our loose. It'll probably be mobile phones or something. Everybody seems to have dropped at least one <laughs> smartphone into a loop. 
Looking back over the past few years, what are you proudest of? What's worked the best? The thing which I think is most successful is this the sense of every door being open. So when you go up the historic Royal Academy stair, up towards the Great Room, there's the drawings collection gallery, which was done a few years ago, but next door to that is a new medieval gallery. And then you go up another level and there's the learning galleries and another level was the Bloomsbury Gallery. Really, before when you went up that staircase, most of the doors were closed and it was really a sense that you didn't really know where you were going. But now, wherever you are in the building, it's open and there's something interesting there to go and have a look at. It sounds like a very simple thing, but it has been a very involved and complex process to open those doors, and that's a really nice way of, of thinking about it. Thank you to all my guests. We hope that you enjoyed listening to Courtauld Cast. Next time, we shine a spotlight on our incredible conservation department and the process of rediscovering Botticelli's breathtaking Trinity altarpiece. I hope you can join us. Courtauld Cast is produced by Novel for the Courtauld Institute of Art and generously supported by Bloomberg Philanthropies. With thanks to our producers Harry Cook and Claire Crofton and executive producer Joe Wheeler. If you enjoyed this episode, please share and follow us on socials at Courtauld on Instagram and at The Courtauld on Twitter. 